Hello, I'm Gil Bailey, and for the next few minutes, I'll be speaking with Rene Girard. When you turn on the 6 o'clock news or read the morning newspaper, you'll have the events of the world interpreted to you in terms of politics, economics, sociology, psychology, and so on. In fact, however, many of the events that are occurring in our world today simply cannot be explained at this level. Important anthropological shifts are taking place. And so it's been said that if cultural anthropologists could write, a lot of journalists would be out of work. My guest today is a cultural theorist who in fact can write and whose writings have influenced an enormous number of scholars in many fields around the world. Professor Girard recently retired from Stanford University. He had his earlier academic career for the most part at Johns Hopkins University. The robust realism of Professor Girard's thought its enormous anthropological sophistication and its powerful insight into social and psychological reality make it an immensely important tool for reckoning with today's cultural and spiritual crisis and for bringing the biblical tradition's unrecognized and vastly underutilized religious resources to bear on this crisis. It's nice to have you, Renee. Thank you for coming. It's nice to be here. In praising your work, the distinguished theologian Robert J. Daly wrote the following, quote, The Girardian theory is one of the greatest intellectual achievements of the late 20th century. A comprehensive vision of the psychological, sociological, political, and religious processes of sin and redemption. End quote. Now, sin and redemption are not the fashionable words for talking about uh, cultural phenomenon today. But let's put those words aside for the moment and return to them later. I'd like to begin by reference to uh, Professor Daly's phrase, comprehensive vision of the psychological, sociological, political, and religious processes. You didn't begin your scholarly career in quest of such a comprehensive vision. You began as a literary critic. Can you tell us how your sweeping anthropological insights germinated in your work with literary text? Uh, I was not even a literary critic. I was really trained as a historian. But when I came to this country, I started to teach literature. And uh, I was wondering what I should tell my students about these novels, which interested me very much. But I was a little silent about them because, precisely, I was not a literary critic. And very quickly, I became interested in conflict. And uh, I felt that uh, great novelists have something to say about the nature of conflict. Uh, in our world, maybe because of the uh, enlightenment of our natural optimism, we don't have any theory of conflict. And we assume that conflict is the result either of ideas, of ideologies, or of uh, biology. We believe there are aggressors, and people are aggressed, and therefore are innocent. And I don't think it's true. I think people fight about the things they desire. And uh, they fight when they desire the same objects. And the question is, why do they desire the same objects? And this is a question that the Marxists have asked. And the Marxists have said they desire the same objects because these objects are scarce. There are not enough of them. But it's not true. We live in a world of uh, consumption, great consumption, and we still have conflicts. 
Uh, if you start looking at the novels, wondering why two uh, teenagers will fall in love with the same girl, um, you will find that the answer is really because they are friends. And this is a paradox, because when you're friends, very often you cannot share the same desire. You can share many things, but you cannot share your girlfriend. And if you have a very nice girlfriend, it is a normal tendency for your friend to fall in love with that girlfriend. As a matter of fact, if he doesn't fall in love with that girlfriend, you, you will be a little bit offended. You will probably think that your girlfriend is not as desirable as she should be. But if he falls in love with your girlfriend, you'll also be offended and worse than offended because you will have a phenomenon of rivalry with him that both of you will tend to blame on the other. Both of you will feel that the other is responsible for the conflict. And in such a conflict, we don't like to think about it. Why? Because it's impossible to blame anybody for it. We love to blame people for conflict. There must be an aggressor and there must be a victim. And in this case, of course, everybody is equally uh, responsible. Because it would be a mistake to believe that the desire which is imitated is less powerful than the original desire. As a matter of fact, the question of the original desire becomes really a moot question when you start talking about imitated desire. Because very quickly, the imitator, since he prevents his uh, model from uh, reaching the object, he becomes an obstacle, the, the imitator tends to desire even more. His desire becomes stronger and your own desire will become stronger. Therefore, this type of rivalry is not a static phenomenon. It's a dynamic one. The more I desire, the more you imitate me, and the more I will imitate you in return. Therefore, instead of being different, conflict is really a matter of symmetry and identity. When we think about conflict, we always try to think of our opponent in terms of differences, we say he's different from me, we do not have the same tastes. It's not true. The more we fight, the more alike we become. And if you think of conflict in these terms, you can see why. So, so equality will not be an automatic solution uh, no. to conflict? Equality is not a solution to conflict. As a matter of fact, equality can create and intensify a certain type of conflict. There is a, one of my fellow countrymen writing about America, Alexis Tocqueville, who emphasized this aspect of democracy very much. Democracy is the regime in which people are competitors, and everybody is always competing with everybody. Therefore, you feel there is an easy access to everything, but... Uh, the obstacles which before were the aristocracy have just changed. They are of a different nature. The obstacle now is everybody else. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is looking for the same prize you're looking. Everybody wants to be first. This is a desire. This is a desire we cannot share.
Well, speaking of everybody wanting to be first, there's a tremendous emphasis in our world on originality, and many people have uh, said that your work is highly original, and I know you feel a little bit ambiguous about that claim. You're one of the few people I know who spent an enormous amount of your time trying to prove that you are not original. For example, one of your later books is on uh, Shakespeare, The Theater of Envy, uh, in which you show that an explication of this uh, problem, the problem of you call mimetic desire, is all over Shakespeare's work. Uh, of course, you also say that in terms of the biblical text. So what you're saying is both original and not original. Is that is that true? It's not original in the sense that uh, our desire for originality uh, begins with Romanticism. Before Romanticism, everybody had to copy the good models, and usually they were the ancient writers in literature. And the modern world is one in which we hate imitation. I think the real reason we hate imitation is because we have so much of it. We are all trying to be original, but we live in a world where fashions have never been more tyrannical than today. And uh, we are really the herd of individualists. I don't know who coined this expression, but it is a very good one. We all try to be original at the expense of everybody else. Therefore, our literature has become, in a way, a, an endless race for saying something no one has ever said. Our music is trying to say, uh, to produce some sounds no one has ever produced before. As a result, I think the arts are dying of starvation because originality is this type of originality is harder and harder to come by how to say something no one has said before i really think that the true originality is going back to the origin of this fighting and to realize that the would-be originals are the greatest imitators what we need is a concept of negative imitation. Realize that when we want to be original, when we refuse to imitate our neighbor, we still imitate that neighbor. And as a result, the two, the people who are original are still doing the same thing, because each one is trying to move away from his competitor at the same moment, and usually in the same fashion, exactly. That's what a fashion really is. We are all doing the same thing because we are all trying to do something different. So when we all discover we are doing the same thing, we shift to another fashion. But we shift en masse once again instead of doing it individually. <laughs> I recently read something by the English poet Geoffrey Hill who has a phrase which is slavish originality. That's an excellent expression. Which, uh, I think, which, which applies to what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Oh, original slavishness. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, your work with the novel and with literature in general led you to the discovery or the uh, explication of the problem of mimetic desire, that our desires awaken in others like desires, and once those are awakened, we have conflict and so on, and you've drawn this out in your books uh, at great length. It also awakened in you an interest in cultural harmony. That is to say, we live in worlds that are, for the most part, harmonious. The question is, where did that harmony come from? Which I guess is a question, where did culture mm -hmm. come from? And I know that your own work turned to the study of yes. anthropology. There certainly is a problem of human culture. If man 
is the animal who doesn't know what to desire. When I say this, of course, I'm very aware that I'm saying the opposite of what everybody is saying, because the desire we like, the desire we cultivate and cherish, is the authentic desire. I don't think there is any such thing as authentic desire. You can see it in children in the way they do not know, and they always follow some other uh, desire. Therefore, conflict is built into social relations. You can see it already in animals who have a tendency to choose the same object, even if there are many of these objects available. Two monkeys will choose the same banana. Therefore, they will stop fighting. And uh, what happens? I think in animals, there is a built-in mechanism that prevents this type of fighting, at least in most instances, from going too far. Animals have what we call dominance patterns. They have a fight, and then after that, one of the two, realizing that he's a weaker or maybe being more peace-loving, decides to submit to the other, to become the dominated animals. But with human beings, we know it's not true. We know we are perfectly able to fight to the finish, to kill each other for matters of what we call prestige or honor. The point of honor in uh, early modern society is people literally killing each other in order not to yield something which is insignificant. Therefore, how can we have uh, a culture is your question. And I really think that if you start looking at cultural institutions, especially the most primitive one, you will see that probably in the matter of conflict, the medicine and the disease are really one, that there must be crisis of uh, great conflict of the type I have mentioned, which become very attractive to an entire group, you see, and in which the struggle for objects tend to uh, yield to a struggle between the antagonists themselves, who become more and more fascinating. And in such a conflict, I think, that mimetic impulse I've been talking about is still present and will tend to uh, create concentrations of antagonism. In other words, there will be a tendency for several of the members of the group to focus on a single one until at the end, I think, they will all focus on one. And when they do, it really means that they transfer their aggressions, their resentment, the feelings of bitterness produced by the struggle itself, they transfer transfer against that single individual. Therefore, when they kill altogether that individual, after that, they will find themselves at peace. There will be de facto tranquility because they literally have no more enemy. I think this experience is the beginning of what we call the sacred because the single victim is perceived both as very bad since this victim is supposed to have caused the whole turmoil, and very good since this victim has put an end to that same turmoil. So when you speak of uh, the mimetic process, you're talking about social contagion. 
And talking about social contagion. And when it comes to conflict, the social contagion is uh, runs its course like an avalanche. Like an avalanche. Ending up with all against one. With all against one. But after that, I see this pattern of all against one as creative in many ways. First, this group is going to be, uh, what should I say, ecstatic about the end of the conflict and will focus on the victim. But this group will be worried about having the same type of fighting again. Therefore, this group is likely to invent what I call ritual, sacrificial ritual. It will ask, how can we prevent this type of fighting if it breaks out again? And the natural answer will be to do the same thing that God has been teaching us, which is the death of the God, the killing of a victim. And a primitive group thinks that there is a God in the background that has taught ritual to them, sacrificial killing. When you ask primitives, there are no primitives anymore, but we have all sorts of documents of anthropologists which all say the same thing. When you ask primitives about their ritual, they will all tell you that there is an original event which was a killing by the God or of the God or of the God by the God. This is really, the difference is insignificant. And that they are redoing it. They are redoing it not only to honor the God, to offer the victim to the God, but for selfish purposes in order to avoid trouble. They say that sacrificial rituals make the community peaceful and extinguish all seeds of conflict in the community. And I really think that they, are, they have learned the lesson of that first event, which I call a scapegoat event, because when we speak about a single victim in our world, which tends to uh, uh, replace uh, an entire community and uh, make that community more peaceful. We use the word scapegoat. Behind the word scapegoat, of course, there is a ritual, the Leviticus uh, ritual, which is described there, which consists in casting out a goat into the desert after the high priest has uh, put his hands and transferred the sins of the community to that ritual. Therefore, there is a religious interpretation, in my view, of scapegoat phenomena in the modern sense. By modern sense, I mean we are aware that the victim is responsible for nothing, that the victim is accidental, and that the victim does not really, uh, what should I say, gather the sins upon its head, but it is some kind of projection by the people who, uh, in a way, through some kind of mimetic contagion, manage to persuade themselves that victim is effective in uh, doing away with conflict. And therefore, this effectiveness becomes real as everybody becomes convinced of it. One of, one of your early students, Eric Gans, has a phrase which I think... Uh, helps clarify this. He speaks of the unproblematic discharge of resentment. Now, resentment is a, is a term that many people use at the end of the 19th century and still today to, to talk about uh, social aggravation generally. But if we have, in any society, 
someone on whom we can discharge our collective resentments, uh, we have order within the community. It's unproblematic in the sense that if you discharge your resentment against a scapegoat who is really the scapegoat of everybody, no one will take up the cause of that victim. In other words, there is no danger of revenge. The violence against the scapegoat is unproblematic in that sense. And morally unproblematic because it raises no moral... Morally unproblematic to a uh, primitive community because it is a teaching of the God. Uh, I think uh, primitive people have a system of ethics and uh, very often they are worried about uh, the harm done to sacrificial victims. But they always put the blame on the God himself. The God has taught this to us because the God wants us to be uh, peaceful. Therefore, sacrifice, in a way, is much better understood by the people who practice it than by the anthropologists who take no account of what the primitive people say about their own sacrifices. They interpret them as something which is either completely natural, people have sacrifices, like uh, uh, they eat when they are hungry or they drink when they are thirsty, or they regard sacrifice as something so crazy that you cannot say anything about it. But primitive people do not do that. They see sacrifice as an instrument of peace. I think it's more than an instrument of peace. It is also a, um, uh, the birth of culture in many ways. For instance, if you think of capital punishment, what is capital punishment in a, not in a primitive society? It is really the whole community getting together against uh, the delinquent. And the only difference with the scene I describe is that there is the idea of delinquency, which is uh, becoming, uh, what should I say, more explicit, I think, than in the original killing. Therefore, you can say that... Uh, Capital punishment is sacrifice with a purpose, getting rid of the victim instead of honoring that victim. But usually the victims, the people who uh, uh, undergo capital punishment in an archaic society are honored as such. And you can see that it is still true in the Middle Ages where someone you kill is somehow sacred. So the, so the moral valence that's put on the victim is not as important as the fact that the, the complete polarization between the community and the victim has taken place, that there's a total unanimity. The unanimity is more important than so. the moral valence. The moral valence, you might say, that uh, fundamentally the victim is ambivalent because it's supposed to be guilty. We kill that victim because it cause trouble, but that victim is also very good since it brought back the peace. And uh, that's what a primitive God really is. A primitive God is both very bad and very good, and very often you don't quite know why it's going to be very good and or it's going to be very bad. But it's better to follow the rules and especially to perform sacrifices when they are demanded by the gods. So archaic people are very scrupulous about uh, attending to their 
ritual That's and true. sacrificial recipes. And they believe in them, and uh, we have no explanation of that belief. Modern, I think the failure of modern anthropology is that uh, it tried to account for sacrifice. And why are we anthropologists? Probably because we have no sacrifices. And we are the only society without blood sacrifice. Therefore, we want to account for, for them. And uh, modern anthropology, until now, I think has failed to account for them. And it has failed to account for them because it has not respected sufficiently the opinion of the people who do the sacrificing. These people are uh, misunderstand their own sacrifices since they attribute too much importance to the victim. At the same time, they understand aspects of what they are doing very well and the consequences upon their own group, which are, I think, the most important thing. In a moment, I want to turn to the biblical tradition, which has helped you understand this process. Uh, but just to wrap up, uh, what you're saying is that archaic societies depended on sacrifice in a way that they didn't, of course, understand. Modern societies, on the other hand, look at it as though it's something from Mars uh, and uh, can't understand what it's about and therefore uh, can't understand the, the, the cultural crisis in the midst of which we're now living precisely because it is one at the heart of which is the gradual dismantling of all the sacrificial and a world, therefore, in which competition is unleashed in a manner which has never happened before in the history of the world. This unleashing of competition is both very good because it means progress, technology, science, all these activities in which people emulate them, each other and produce many things, but it also means the most horrendous wars and conflicts, civil and foreign conflicts in history. So we're having our discussion at the end of the bloodiest century in human history. And we do not know why. We do not know why, and I think we must look for an anthropological answer. Rene, when your first important, well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, your books were very important before that. But the book that really put your theory on the map, so to speak, uh, was Violence in the Sacred. And shortly after that book came out uh, to uh, an enormous critical review, uh, one reviewer said uh, excitedly, finally we have an interpretation uh, of culture from a purely atheistic point of view. Uh, your own uh, understanding of uh, religious tradition, the biblical tradition, was not exhibited in that book. Your next major book was entitled Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. And in that book, it became perfectly clear that uh, you saw the problem as the cultural problem, as a religious problem. But unlike the Enlightenment thinkers, you did not think that the solution to the problem was simply to walk away from religion. Can you tell us that what mm -hmm. led from violence, to, violence in the sacred to things hidden since the foundation of the world? Yes. I really think that uh, this reviewer was correct and that uh, the interpretation of primitive religion, which I gave you, uh, 
is atheistic in the sense that there is no transcendental element. At the same time, it does not say that religion is mere superstition, that it has no significance in society. I think it accounts for rituals in a way which may seem very weird at first, but which works, works very well if you start applying it to uh, specific societies, which unfortunately we don't have time to do. But you see many details that uh, fit the system so well that ultimately, from what we call a scientific viewpoint, you cannot discount uh, a theory that explains so much. But the question is, where does the explanation come from? And I'm not being modest when I say it doesn't come from me at all. You see, earlier I said the word scapegoat to us implies innocence and implies, in a way, a mechanism of illusion. Where does that interpretation of scapegoat come from? Not from the scholars, because they don't use the word scapegoat. It's a familiar use of the word which contains the interpretation and which is more brilliant, I think, than all the anthropology, the academic anthropology we have. Because what it says, I think, it contains that theory I gave you in a nutshell. One could say that my theory is only the amplification of what we mean by scapegoat. And ultimately, we refer to an archaic uh, religion. So, what do I say? I say that ultimately, this interpretation comes from the Bible. When people talk about the Bible, and... uh, in particular about the Gospels, they usually say today, well, the Gospels are really only one myth among others. In other words, one of these primitive religions we've been talking about. Because what do you have in the Gospels? You have a big crisis at the beginning, which we have in myth. Then you have a murder which is not collective as it often is in mythology. But it's uh, collectively inspired, I would say, because in the Synoptic Gospels, if you read the account of the Passion, you see that Pilate does not act spontaneously. He listens to the crowd. Therefore, Jesus is a scapegoat in the sense that I expressed before. When I say this, many people are disturbed, but I think the Gospels say it. The Gospels do not use the expression scapegoat. But they have a much better one, which has the same meaning, but which says it better, which is the Lamb of God. What does the Lamb of God mean? It refers to a sacrificial victim. But when we use the word Lamb, we emphasize the innocence of that victim, the fact that that victim should not have been killed. So in the Gospels, you really have this crisis, a collective murder. And this collective murder seems to have the same effects as a a primitive murder in the sense that it brings back the peace. Pilate was afraid there would be a riot, and after he delivers Jesus to the crowd, there is no riot. Everybody returns home in peace. As a matter of fact, Luke adds that Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies until then, became reconciled on that day by the passion. But this is no Christian reconciliation. Who are the Christians? The Christians are the few people who, looking at that murder, 
do not share in the conviction that Jesus is guilty, but realize that Jesus is innocent. As a matter of fact, if you look at a myth, a myth will look at the collective murder as something which is not only uh, just, but absolutely indispensable. And in a myth, you never have any disunity in the crowd. You never have any mention of a small minority that would disagree with the crowd. Therefore, it's always a unanimous community. A myth is the uh, product of the whole community. Whereas if you look at the Gospels, you have the, the apostles who, on the third day after Jesus' death, meet together and experience the resurrection. And from that day on, they proclaim the innocence of Jesus. This is especially striking in view of the fact that at the beginning of this process, and in my view, in order to show the unanimity which is necessary, the disciples, especially Peter, are ready to surrender to the crowd. When Peter is in the crowd, in the courtyards of the high priest, he joins the crowd. The Peter's denial is not due to fear. It is an imitation of the crowd. Peter becomes a member of the crowd. When Pilate delivers Jesus to the crowd, he also becomes a member to the crowd. He's a sovereign. He could say no. He would prefer to say no. But finally he says yes because he's intimidated by the crowd. Or the two people crucified with Jesus, they vociferate with the crowd. Why? Because they imitate the crowd. The more crucified you are yourself, the more tempted you are to crucify whoever is crucified by the crowd. Therefore, the Gospels bring you a totally different perspective on that murder. They tell you the victim is innocent. If you look at all great myths, you will see that the victim is guilty. Oedipus is supposed to have committed parricide, incest, and by doing this, to have given the plague to the community. And this type of accusation against mythical victims should enlighten us regarding the nature of what is going on there. Because we know that when crowds are out of their mind, they uh, usually turn to this type of accusations against their victim. Therefore, what happens in the gospel is unique as a rehabilitation of the victim. This rehabilitation is also there in many texts of the uh, Old Testament. Now, what is the cultural and anthropological ramification of this revelation? Well, yeah, absolutely enormous, because we are faced by the fact that uh, Jesus is presented, is declared to be divine by Christian theology. Therefore, all the people who do not really see what happens in the text say it's the same thing as the divinization of Oedipus or any mythical hero. But it is the opposite. Jesus is divinized because he reveals the whole system of scapegoats, therefore makes all the other gods outmoded. We realize that all the other gods are predicated on the mistake of scapegoating. They reconcile the community not because they are gods, but because the community has projected all its resentment 
on the victim. By the, through the fact that the Gospels reveal this, they create this world of ours. It, take, it takes 2,000 years, maybe, but we are finally in a world where we question scapegoating. Uh, we are the only world which is able to say when a victim is killed by a unanimous community, maybe that victim is innocent. Only the Jewish and Christian worlds in history have been able to question a unanimous community condemning a victim. Well, now, as you know, we live in a world where, uh, for understandable reasons, a multicultural ethos uh, is abroad, uh, which essentially says uh, Christianity is a respectable religion. Uh, it has its adherents. Uh, there are others. They have theirs. Uh, Christianity uh, uh, should not uh, claim for itself something other than uh, influence in its, uh, in its little precinct. Now, what, what you're saying is that it is having an influence in our world regardless of the confessional uh, proclivities of people who are uh, yes, under the Yes, the ancient world, I think, was aware that Judaism and Christianity were destructive of uh, primitive religion. That's why they regarded Judaism and Christianity as atheistic, which they are not, of course. But the Gospels constantly emphasize the demystification aspect of scapegoating. For instance, the Gospel will go back to a psalm which says, they hated me without a cause. And they hated me without a cause of course, applies to Jesus himself, who was hated without a cause by all the participants in the Passion, including Peter and the disciples at the beginning. This should not be regarded as an anti-Semitic statement, but it is a statement against all pagan religions. In pagan religions, people hate Oedipus with a cause. He's supposed to have committed parricide and to give us the plague. Since he gave us the plague, we have to cast him out. And we are correct in doing that. And if after that we commemorate this event through a new kind of sacrifice, we are doing the right thing. Whereas in Christianity, this type of religion is totally suppressed by the Christian revelation. So Christianity, if you want what I see, is enormously paradoxical because I say, ah, atheistic, humanistic society has not been able to demystify religion. It has a most superficial view of religion because it thinks that religion is not even useful in a society, whereas Christianity is aware of what it calls the powers of this world, of the role they play in a community. It is aware that the powers of this world expel violence with violence. How can Satan expel Satan is a question of Jesus in the Gospels. This question is never answered in the Gospel, but the answer is the passion. The answer is the event I have been talking about. The religions of Satan, the religions whose transcendence is satanic, are the religions which expel Satan with Satan. 
This does not mean that Christianity regards other religions as satanic. I think it regards the transcendence as satanic. This transcendence is false. But the other religions do not embrace that transcendence. They always try to keep him out, to cast it out with their sacrifices, to keep it away. Therefore, you have to make a distinction between the idea that uh, non-biblical religion are satanic in the sense of their transcendence, but are not in the sense of uh, their conduct in daily life, even their rituals. Paul is certainly not afraid of uh, sacrificial meat, since uh, he says it can be eaten without problems, since it really means nothing at all. But uh, uh, Christianity, therefore, in my view, is the truth of former religions. The greatest paradox is that Christianity, the revelation, occurs through the same event, which before was directly the genesis of religion. In other words, pagan religions are the fulfillment of scapegoating, which you cannot see. That's why these religions never talk about scapegoating. They don't understand that scapegoating is their genetic principle. They come out of it, therefore they do not see it. So you, yeah. So you, what you're saying is things like Greek philosophy, the Enlightenment thinking, which is a derivative of that to some extent. Uh, these are attempts to to tiptoe around the yes. whole sacrificial business, right. whereas Christianity goes right to the heart. They are still dependent on scapegoating and victimization, insofar they do not speak about it. There are many theologians who reverse completely what I say, because they say, but it's Judaism and Christianity which talk about scapegoating victims. Of course they do. And Exactly as when you see a victim who is condemned unjustly, you see he's a scapegoat. It doesn't mean you're, you are the scapegoater. You are the one who is defending the scapegoat. When you say scapegoat, you imply a principle of illusion, of mystification, which you, uh, 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 what should I say, which is an accusation of the people who do that, but you do not endorse it yourself when you do this. By the way, I want to go back to a point you, you were speaking of Satan. The word Satan means the accuser. And when you speak of Satan, what you're talking about is that process. The word, the significance, the accuser, which is uh, the prosecutor, which is probably the original meaning of Satan, is extremely important because mythology is a process of accusation which works. It works so well that today most people are Freudians, and they believe Oedipus and all of us are guilty of parasite and incest, which is not true. We must shake off that stupid psychoanalytical guilt, you see, which is forced upon us by mythology. And Christianity does that. Christianity, even though it talks about original sin, never accuses us of parasite incest and of giving the plague to each other, which is what mythology does. Where is the guilt complex, I would ask you. <laughs> Well, now, your intellectual journey begins with literature. You turn to anthropology. Uh, in the course of that, you turn to the biblical text, and you see something unique there. You see a kind of anthropological encyclopedia showing a process of gradual uh, demystification, gradual moving away from the sacrificial mechanisms, which is culminated 
in a revelatory way in the, in the passion story. But all this is your intellectual journey. Now, I know that this intellectual journey had personal ramifications in your own life. Can you speak a little about that and maybe about uh, what Christian conversion is in your estimation? Well, I'm not sure I can speak about what Christian conversion is, but uh, in my own uh, itinerary, I started with literature, that theory of conflict and mimetic uh, desire and rivalry followed. And when I realized that the biblical and the Christian were completely misunderstood uh, when they were equated to myth of death and resurrection, when I realized they really explain this myth but are not explainable themselves, I felt that they were true. I became convinced of the truth of the biblical uh, revelation. And of course, it was a very personal experience, which is uh, very difficult to uh, describe in a few words. But when it happened to me, I was aware that uh, it was going to dominate my entire life, which it has, because it's an experience which is now close to 40 years old, but uh, which was connected in a way with uh, the insight I'm trying to uh, explain to you, and I have spent most of my life trying to make that insight easier to understand, because I think ultimately this insight is, is very simple. It's very simple, very easy, and we live in a world where, in a way, we've been overwhelmed by propaganda against uh, the Bible and Christianity. Propaganda is probably not the right word, since the people who uh, spout that propaganda are perfectly sincere themselves. They believe that Christianity is a myth of death and resurrection like any other. I say no. Christianity is the text that, by going back to the origin, in other words, by doing that itinerary, Jesus is the one, in a way, who accepts to die for our sins. What does it mean? He accepts, in order to reveal the truth of scapegoating, to reject scapegoating, to reject violence, to reject retaliations, to such an extent that he will become the victim of his own message. When people refuse what he calls the kingdom of God, which is simply rejecting retaliations, they have to turn ultimately against Jesus. In other words, they have to make him the scapegoat, which before were the primitive gods. But in this case, they turn into the scapegoat, the man who knows everything about scapegoating. And the man, you have to, what should I say, you have to resort to transcendence in order to understand what happens. Because the real mystery is the fact that the disciples who had already surrendered to scapegoating, after the death of Jesus, became able to convert, to understand that they were persecutors. The first two Christians, and the most important ones, are two people who make that experience. They are Peter, who understands his denial, and it's his true conversion. 
And of course, Paul, who doesn't even know Jesus, but who was persecuting Christians and who meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And on the road to Damascus, what does he hear? He hears Jesus say, why do you persecute me? And the me is very important because it applies to Peter, but it applies to any persecutor. Because what Jesus says is that he is in the place of all wrongly persecuted victims who are ignorant victims themselves. But Jesus is aware of what he's doing, of what he's doing. And therefore, the idea of the paraclete in Christianity is enormously important because the paraclete is the spirit of Jesus, which Jesus, because he dies for us, becomes able to communicate to us. And this is what we call the gift of grace, who makes us able to understand a little bit the experience of Jesus and his purpose when he died, and to make us share in it in a manner which is always insufficient and very weak and feeble compared to his, but nevertheless enables us to uh, understand the uniqueness of Christianity in regard to this question of victims, which has become the most important question of our world. And frees us, uh, to some extent, from the mesmerizing power of the sacrificial business. It does, and it will completely in the other world, I hope. (laughs) But certainly it does not free us completely in this life. Uh, We live in a world where everybody is claiming victim status. How unique is this, and to what do you attribute it? This is absolutely unique. You know, if uh, someone had come to Pilate, for instance, and claimed victim status, or someone had gone to a Chinese uh, official and said, I'm a victim, therefore I have rights. You see what I mean? They would have been laughed out of court. You see, we are the only world where a victim has right, not as a member of the community, not as a member of this family, this clan, this tribe, but as a victim. And I think this is due to uh, Christianity. Only Christianity can do that. Therefore, this power of victims in our world can be abused. It can become another form of persecution. Because man is infinitely resourceful in the reinvention of, uh, uh, what should I say, self-delusion, of self-deception, of that form of evil which is always with us. And today we still persecute people, but we always persecute them in the name of uh, liberating victims. For instance, communism presented itself as the liberation of all victims. Communism is what I call the totalitarianism of the left that tells us that uh, Christianity is, uh, uh, what should I say, is a massive production of victims, that it is its essence. And it tries in a way to uh, do better than Christianity by liberating all victims, and the way to liberate victims, of course, is to kill the victimizers, to destroy them, to prevent them from uh, harming us. But Jesus knows better, because Jesus knows that this process is 
revenge is a process that infinitely is a mimetic process which infinitely keeps violence alive and will return inevitably to the victimage mechanism. Satan casting out Satan. Satan casting out Satan once again. But Satan casts Satan only in extremis when we have suffered enormously and been two-thirds destroyed. And today anyway, we may say that Satan no longer casts Satan. The idea that Satan is destroyed by the passion is coming true in the sense that uh, Satan cannot expel Satan. Therefore, instead of being able to chain itself, Satan is unchained, unleashed in our world, and seems more alive than ever, when in fact he's really already dead, mm. in the sense that we no longer believe in him in some ways. We no longer believe in him as a transcendental power. Which means we can sit here and talk about it. The very we, fact that we right. are talking about things like this, our ancestors... Our ancestors would have, have been so scared that they would have seen us as magicians mm-hmm. and uh, probably would have uh, thrown a lot of blessed water upon us and maybe uh, treated us a little worse than that. Yes. Yeah. Well, let me quote something from one of your books and ask you to, uh, to comment on it in, in light of today. Uh, You wrote this. In reality, no purely intellectual process and no experience of a purely philosophical nature can secure the individual the slightest victory over a mimetic desire and its victimage delusion. For there to be even the slightest degree of progress, the victimage delusion must be vanquished on the most intimate level of experience. What do you mean by that? And, well, I mean this. Uh, in ancient philosophy, you have something which looks very much like uh, the experience of Christ again, and it is uh, the death of Socrates. Socrates is a victim of a society. Socrates is a victim of uh, uh, unintelligent persecutors who don't understand him. But if you look at the death of Socrates you will see that philosophy, the philosophers, Plato and his friends, are always on the good side. They always understand the truth. The tremendous power of Christianity, in my view, is to realize the we- fully the weakness of mankind. That is why I think nothing is more important in the passion than the betrayal of the disciples. Not only does Peter deny his master, but the other disciples scatter at the beginning of the Passion. They don't uh, understand what is going on. Therefore, if they were limited to their human power, it would be another myth. It would be another scapegoating. Maybe Jesus would appear as a god in the end, but he would appear as guilty in the sense uh, he is regarded as guilty by the people who persecute him. We would have another primitive God. We would not have this awareness of our own failing, of our own involvement in scapegoating, which philosophy cannot give us, I think, but which the meditation of the Christian passion gives us. Therefore, this involvement, in a way, is the real objective knowledge of this world, which uh, the hard sciences 
do not have to worry about the involvement of the subject, but only religion involves the subject in such a way as to give him a certain amount of objectivity. So Plato and his friends give birth to philosophy, and the bumbling apostles change the world. Change the world in a way which no philosophy can do. And the people who confuse Plato and Jesus make a mistake which is less serious, I think, than to confuse uh, Christianity with one of the myth and resurrection. Myth, but a mistake which nevertheless is similar. It is very important, the death of Socrates, and it is one of these deaths which creates something which is no longer a myth in the sense of uh, primitive mythology, but which is not the truth, in my view, in the sense of Christianity. Because it is the rise of philosophy, but not its fall and its repentance. And it's falling and repenting these days. I've been talking with René Girard, and it's been a great pleasure of mine, and I'm glad you joined us. Thank you very much. Thanks, René. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.